We are going to start today's 1M by 1M session with a conversation with Sunil Pargava, who is the founder and managing partner of Tandem Capital. Sunil, welcome to the show. Hi, Parmana. Good to be here. Thanks for having me. Pleasure. Tell us about Tandem. What is the focus of the firm? How big is the fund? What size investments are you making? Uh, so this is uh, we are currently investing out of our third fund, which is Tandem Three. It's a hundred million dollar fund. Um, our first check is usually one to two million in late seed deals, where the company is usually raising two to five million dollars. We invest in companies that have discovered a business or in the process of discovering scale. They are not focused on a particular sector or technology. Uh, instead, we look at the business and like to invest in teams where the timing is right for channel innovation. So um, let us talk a little bit about what types of ventures have you invested in so we get a feel for where is your uh, sweet spot, where is your center of gravity. Industry sector, B2B, B2C, you've talked about stage a little bit. I would like to double-click down on the stage, but we'll do that in due course. Let's go one step at a time. Yeah, so we, um, we've invested in a bunch of different markets. As I said, we're not focused on, you know, a particular technology. It's not like we are focused on, um, you know, enterprise, or we're focused on mobile or uh, Bluetooth and so on. What we are uh, focused on uh, is kind of your, uh, your channel and how you go to market and what your product and um, uh, channel innovation is. So to give you an example, one of our we have a bunch of investments in the construction side, and one of them is a company called Deco. Uh, mm -hmm. which is out of Seattle, and they're in the home, uh, smart home space. And uh, there are lots of companies in the smart home space, including companies like Nets and so on. But uh, they, these guys' pieces was that uh, you have smart switches, which cost 75 to $100, and you have dumb switches, which are the ones that you see most commonly in homes and offices. And the mm -hmm. uh, dumb switches cost $2. So um, when you, when a builder has to put in, you know, a thousand of these, or a hundred of these switches uh, in a home, he's not quite ready to take a hundred dollar cost. So these guys have made an upgradable switch. So if the dealers can, the builders can put in switches at a very low cost, pretty much close to what they're, dump switches would cost, and then when somebody buys it, they can very simply upgrade the home by putting in these cartridges that make the upgradable switches smart. So that is uh, a very different go-to market. They are very attractive to people building new homes. So we look for innovation like that. What is that. the go-to market for a company like that to give us a flavor of um you know, what is the go-to-market innovation? Yeah, so their go-to-market innovation is that, you know, for new home builders, there's a very simple value proposition. If you spend 200 extra bucks per home, which is peanuts, 
when you're building a home, you can now have the ability to say that it is, it can be made smart uh, when somebody buys it. So in the model home, um, they can show all the smarts. And then if somebody is interested in buying it, they can just um, uh, say, yeah, we'd like to pay whatever the upgrade fee is. And then somebody who's a minimum wage worker can go in and plug in the modules or they can do it themselves at a later stage. And it's also future-proofed. If things change, they can push out the Bluetooth cartridge and put in the green food cartridge. So what they've done is they've made the selling and installation of smartphones a marketing cost as opposed to a, a reasonably big building cost for home builders. So that enables home builders to make the decision much more simply, which enables their go-to-market to be much uh, easier than you know, so from their point of view, it's still a B2B deal, though. It's not a B2C deal. Yeah. Actually, in, in, our, in our second fund, we did a lot of B2C companies. In our third fund, it's much more B2B or B2B2C rather than B2C. Okay. And um, what trends are you seeing in your deal flow? What's, um, this is not necessarily what you've invested in, but what what trends are you picking up based on what comes to you right now? So today the ecosystem for investing in very early stage companies is uh, very robust. There's a, this is the phase where companies are building their MVPs and discovering their business. There are accelerators like Y Combinator, Techstar, StartX, there are many five to $50 million funds, there's angels, angel lists. So the number of companies that are getting uh, enough of a slug of capital to uh, get their act together and find the initial seed of their business uh, is tremendous. So, you know, when we go to a YC demo day, there are 100 odd companies there and StartX has another 20, and there's so many different uh, accelerators, and we get things from AngelList and so on. So all of these are, um, uh, so the, the quantity of deal flow is exceptional. There's also a lot of market disruption that's going on. There are different ways to reach uh, <coughs> businesses. There are different ways to reach customers. So there's a lot of opportunity to, but finding that right theme with the right timing and right focus is still not easy at all. So we don't make, um, you know, that many uh, investments. In a year, we probably will do about uh, five or six investments in a year, but we see probably 20 to 30 times that many companies that we meet with, and, you know, there's obviously way more than that that are out there. So the question is more about trends. In the, um, you know, let's say 200, 400, 800 companies that you see, what are the trends? What, what are people working on in your deal flow that are interesting? I think it's extremely broad. I mean, even, even if you look at just what we've invested in, we have companies in the construction space, we have construction companies in the food space, we have companies uh, in the transportation space, we have enterprise uh, infrastructure companies. 
And this is, uh, so I think, uh, you know, now you hear a lot about blockchain, which is disrupting trust companies. So I think it's a very wide spectrum. Um, I think the best idea, the best way to kind of get a sense of the breadth of the companies is just go and look at the variety of uh, different types of problems that are being addressed by, you know, a single YC class, you know. So you look at that and, you know, there are 100 companies in there. There are B2B, B2C, global, uh, you know, people are funding. Like one of the companies we're looking at right now is funding student uh, education. So it, it's all over the place. I, I don't think there's um, – and that's why we are focused on channel innovation because that's kind of the commonality of most of these things is that the ones that just build a better mousetrap have a harder time breaking out into uh, venture-scale companies. The ones that have channel innovation in addition to product innovation are the ones that tend to break out. And because of uh, Facebook and Google and other mechanisms, you know, inside sales is becoming simpler and better. So all of those things are leading to different ways of selling and different – So, but you have to get a very clear value proposition for the buyer. You have to know what they're buying. So would, it be fair, would it be fair yeah. to say in the types of entrepreneurs that you are interested in investing in, channel innovation is one of the key requirements? Absolutely, yeah. For us, that is, that is very important. Uh, if you're just building a better, you know, another better mousetrap, probably people who understand that that particular mousetrap are good investors for that. We kind of look at how is the how is the ecosystem for selling products like that changing. Yeah. Um, could you also double click down on stage for us? Um, you said you put in a million dollars to $2 million in a 2 to $5 million round. Um, yeah. So, yeah, so what, go ahead. what are you looking for? Like if, if it's a SaaS deal, for instance, are you looking for a certain ARR number, which a lot of funds today have kind of benchmarked on what ARR numbers they would come in at, or if there are other sectors, you have, you have certain metrics that you are anchoring your uh, investments to? Yeah. So, you know, the first stage, which is prior to where we come in, in uh, is where the team comes together, you build enough of a product to demonstrate that there is a business here. And you have a thesis as to how this business is going to grow to a uh, big size quickly enough. Uh, so when we come in, we look at it, so, you know, in SaaS, one would assume that to get to your A round, you need to um, have probably a million in ARR with 50-plus percent margins uh, and a, a 3x growth rate. So if you're at 300K right now, you've got to be at a million in 12 months. So what we look at is, uh, you know, in a marketplace it might be something different where you could say that, you know, if you had a million a month in GMV, you had, you know, about 12 to 15% margins 
and same 3x growth over the last 12 months. That would be a, something that the Series A guys would be uh, interested in. So when we invest, we look at your, uh, you know, what evidence that you have that shows us that you can get to some of these numbers in 12 months. So usually we want to see our deals get from where we are to a Series A in, uh, you know, nine months on average. Some might get to it in six, some might get to it in 12, some might take a little longer, but that's kind of what we look at. So what we want to do is we want to kind of fund that level of, so uh, based on what your go-to-market is, what numbers we think the Series A guys would like to see, that's kind of how we look at it. So give you an so example. So you don't consider yourselves a Series A investor? No, we don't consider ourselves a Series A investor. We usually, uh, because of Series A today, people expect evidence of scale. So they want to see significant growth, uh, mm -hmm. 3X growth. That's really important because fundamentally, if you're in a really big market, if you go and tell them, oh, you know, we have a, you know, $20 billion addressable market, and if you're growing at 1x or 2x, there's no evidence that there is actually a really big addressable market. So most of the Series A guys, at least the quality Series A guys, are looking for growth. A lot of the companies that come to us have shown that there's a business. They are very clear on why somebody is willing to pay them money. And they have a thesis that this is how we can expand the growth. They've got, you know, a few things in place. So take, for example, one of our companies called Outdoorsy, which was in the RV uh, rental space. When they came to us, they, they were a marketplace company. They didn't own any RVs. They had uh, 100K in GMV. So they showed that there was, um, you know, a reasonable, um, there was a business. But that wasn't an interesting business to any Series A company. Um, but we understood the innovation both on the channel side and the product side. And now, you know, they've done, I think last month they did 20 million in GMB in like about 14 months. So that's the kind of, I mean, that's an outstanding example, but those are the kind of things that we are uh, uh, interested in seeing. So um, the numbers that you quoted, like a two to five, one to two million investment in a five million round, from the universe that we operate in, people are not ready to raise a five million round before a Series A usually. So that's what I find a bit confusing in how well, you position yeah, yourself as a fund. Yeah, five million is, um, is at the top end. Usually they're two to uh, four million. I mean, yeah, I mean there, there are some, like we, we invested in a company called Capability and then they ended up getting into YC. There is about three million when, they, uh, when we put in some money. And now they're going to raise like a six, seven million dollar round. But the key thing was that they didn't have traction in terms of they didn't have an operational uh, system in place. 
they have built some stuff, they've got some prototypes done, they've got some pilots going, but they didn't have a clear, uh, you know, thing of scale. So it just kind of, if you have scale, then that's when the E-Round guys are very excited about you. It's not so much about the money. The money you may need less. You may need more if you're producing hardware like Deco is. You need more money. If you're if you're doing something like outdoorsy, you need less money. Uh, but it's kind of more the stage of the business. So how much have you proven in the business? Have you proven that there's a business? Have you proven scale? So you are. If I let me see if I can parse this right, because we are really trying to understand the positionings of the funds who come here to uh, explain their positioning and. Um, you know, right now we have all kinds of permutations and combinations from pre-seed, seed, post-seed, pre-series A, and you're you're kind of positioning yourselves as pre-series A. So the That's difference right. that you are highlighting, I think this is what I understand, is that you are pre-series A in that the company has shown traction but not acceleration. Is that accurate? Correct. Yeah. So we want to show that you can scale because it's, you know, you can sell a little bit of pretty much anything, but you have a, if you fund a company that's not going to grow fast enough into a big market, whether you hit the wall in series A or series B, you're going to hit a wall at some point. Yeah. So, Absolutely. So really and, and most companies, are not um, suited to venture capital. Their most hyper growth is not a natural state. They're rare I companies that, agree. they're very okay. rare companies that can achieve hyper growth. Absolutely, and that's why, you know, that's why, I mean, that's why we see a lot of companies and we only invest in a few. And I don't think that, uh, you know, in Silicon Valley, sometimes people feel that they have to raise venture money. I mm -hmm. don't think that that's right at all. I think uh, it's not, an indication that you have a good business is just an indication that you potentially have something that could be hyper-growth. And when we bet on companies, we are betting on the fact that these founders are signed up for hyper-growth and they have a shot at it. And what's going to happen is if they don't, uh, then, you know, the investors and the founders are going to be unhappy, which happens to a lot of companies. Happens a lot. It happens actually to most of the venture portfolios. So very few outliers actually end up successful and make the fund equation work. The rest of them fail to achieve yeah. hyper growth. What yeah, about like geography? Where? What is your uh, footprint? Where do you like to invest? So this is kind of our third year of investing. So in our first couple of years, we were uh, we invested in companies in many geographies. We have teams from Mexico, Canada, Portugal, Eastern Europe, from India. Uh, but uh, now we are in this, in this later stage of the fund, I think we need to, um, you know, we don't have as much time luxury, so we are pretty much focused on the U.S. markets and U.S. companies. But, you know, in investing, if there's a really good company that comes up from anywhere, we are definitely will listen. And, and I imagine you have all these companies, even if they are in the U.S., they often have an offshore operation that is doing a bulk of the engineering. It's a very common trend at the moment, right? 
Yeah, I think uh, at our stage, uh, I would say about 25% of the companies have that. Uh, if they are from different countries, then definitely they do. If they are from the U.S., they tend not to, at our stage, have that. But going forward, most of them end up doing that. But, uh, you know, what we see also is a huge number of companies that are starting elsewhere and then coming to, to Silicon Valley or to some part of the United States to actually raise uh, yeah. later stage capital. And by, I'm not even saying later stage as in Series B, Series C. I'm talking late, early stage capital. Simple, yeah. You know, even Series A, Series A, they're building products elsewhere. They're selling from elsewhere for the for for the first couple of years and then coming here to raise money. So that's a very very big trend at the moment. Yes, I we see uh, a reasonable number of that. I mean, given that you know I have connections in India as probably you do, we see a lot of companies coming out of India that are trying to do that. Uh, we haven't invested in too many of those, but uh, I think. For a long time, India was focused on the B2C market. It's just over the last year that they've finally focused on the B2B market. So we're seeing a little more of that. Uh, but you're absolutely right. There are a lot of people coming in. Um, and we, we uh, are open to that. We, have, uh, we just did a Canadian company uh, mm -hmm. that was, uh, you know, uh, that came in. They actually still have their offices in Canada. They haven't moved to Silicon Valley, uh, but mm -hmm. they're going doing good stuff. There's a lot going on in Vancouver, especially because uh, the visa situation is a much easier one in Canada. Yep. But um, what are some of your notable companies? You've mentioned a few along the way. Have you had? Um, exits, for instance, that you would like to discuss? Uh, I mean, we've had tiny exits which are not worth kind of uh, really discussing, but we are too early in fund three, you know, we're in the third year of investing, so it's too early for a uh, big exit. Um, you know, some of the things that we did in, uh, I think in fund two, like Outdoorsy is going to go out and raise it. Uh, series B, they're doing phenomenally well. I mean, obviously, you know, one of the things is that exits now are coming at much, exits in the form of an IPO or an acquisition are coming at much bigger valuations. Um, but, you know, so some of our companies are getting to the Series B level. Uh, a lot of them are getting to the Series A level. Um, uh, in Fund uh, 2, we had a a uh, company that was actually based out of India, the two founders were here. It was a U.S. incorporated company, but most of the team was in Bangalore. Uh, it was in the gaming space. It was called Bash uh, Gaming. They um, owned the largest bingo franchise in the world on mobile. Uh, they were doing about $8 million a month in revenue, and they exited to um, game show network for about 160 million with only a couple of million investors. So that was a good exit. Another one of our companies was Style, um, which makes a little uh, dongle that you can attach to your keys or put in your wallet and so on that helps you find things. That's doing really, really well, but I don't think they are planning to exit um, 
uh, they'll probably try and go for an IPO. Uh, so, um, yeah, so, uh, you know, we have a lot of promising companies, but nothing exists. And what is your most promising company in the portfolio currently? <laughs> That's a tough question. I think the one which, uh, from a revenue perspective, is further along is Outdoorsy. Uh, they are mm -hmm. at a very That's RV rental one. Yeah, they are at a very high run rate, um, and it's it's you know these marketplace companies. The interesting part about them is that they have a very exponential uh, growth curve. So they start out slow, and then once they hit the formula, then uh, they grow very very rapidly. Obviously, their margins are not as high as SaaS companies. So the SaaS company curve and the marketplace company curve is, is quite different. How do you process the current investment climate where capital is moving further and further upstream? And as I said earlier, we have all these, you know, different blends now of pre-series, no, pre-seed, seed, both seed, pre-series A, series A. How does a seed investor, pre-seed investor or an entrepreneur mitigate the CDs a gap by the time you go through so many rounds of financing you've already lost so much equity in the process how do you how do you view all this um i think you know you have to have a very i think a lot of people the first thing entrepreneurs should realize is that investors do not invest in products they invest in businesses so the I mean, I have so many people come and talk to me and, you know, the first 20 minutes or 25 minutes of the conversation are about their product. And you've got to get to the business very, very quickly, both in your mind, and that's what you should I completely on. agree with you. We teach all our entrepreneurs to focus on business. Exactly. So I think, the, you know, if you're focused on business, you have to raise capital to get rid of the you know, some business risk. So initially, you know, you want to know what people are, you know, if you have a thesis that people will pay for X, try and validate that thesis and raise the least amount of money to validate that thesis. Now, if we say we have, you know, whichever investors, irrespective of what they say, if you tell them that this is what you do, they'll say, oh, yeah, this is kind of the business risk we want to take. So in our case, we say, hey, we are willing to take risks on scale. We are not willing to take the risk on do you have a business. Uh, we used to be, you know, tandem one and two, and even in the early starts of three, we were willing to say, hey, we'll, if you have a good space and you're a good mm -hmm. team, we will uh, bet on finding a business mm -hmm. along with you. So mm -hmm. I think if you go down that path, the venture community is, or the investment community which consists of angels who have, you know, just based on how they're feeling on that particular day, um, they will listen to your story, and if they like you, if they like the business, for whatever reason, they will write you a check. It's up to you to not raise too much money and reach the next milestone. If you don't reach the next milestone, that's when you really get hit with the significant dilution. Yeah. Yeah. If you have a uh, yeah. And I think, um, you know, 
the mind, there's a mindset problem that we constantly struggle with because our work is very early stage work. So there's this obsession with raising capital and we constantly trying to make them unlearn that obsession and, and focus on customers. They're, they're more interested in chasing investors than interested in chasing customers and that is a surest way to lose control of the company and, and eventually actually end up failing. Absolutely. I agree with you 100%. It's like you've got to get, you've got to be very, uh, maybe, you know, maniacally focused on what is it that the customer wants to buy. And okay. most people are very focused on what they want to sell. So they'll come here and tell you why their product is the best thing to slice bread. They're not telling you about why the customer wants to buy their product. And it's a, mm. it's a subtle distinction, but it's a very important a very, very important distinction. Yeah. How do you pass unicorn mania? Oh, you know, I can't say I spend a lot of time thinking about it. You know, on one hand, there's a lot of uh, disruption, both in terms of technology and in terms of how you can get your uh, product or service to people. Uh, so there's, you know, we see tons and tons of new things that are disrupting uh, the world. But uh, at the same time, there are new monopolistic companies, Google, Amazon, Facebook, Apple, ones in China, so on, that are also emerging. So the environment is getting tougher and tougher. So I think there's a possibility of having some very large companies um, uh, you know, emerge, but on the other hand, you know, these companies like Google and Amazon and so on are extremely, have extremely deep pockets and extremely strong execution uh, um, capabilities. So, uh, you know, the number of unicorns there are seems to be uh, a bit nutty. But, you know, hey, uh, people, rich people can spend their money the best way they feel. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, I make a very clear distinction between real unicorns and pseudo-unicorns. The problem is there are a few unicorns in the market, especially in the private market, that are legitimate unicorns, and it's full of pseudo-unicorns that have absolutely no legitimacy whatsoever. I, yeah, I agree, but I don't, you know, it's always interesting to hear the stories and the business models. They're very educational into what has worked for them. Uh, in getting um, traction and so on and try to kind of build good companies that uh, can benefit from that. And having your point earlier that don't go seeking venture capital uh, to, you know, if you want to build, like there's a friend of mine, he built, a, um, you know, just two of them, they built a SaaS company which makes $5 million a year in revenue. And just two of them. They raise no money. And they have a very nice lifestyle. You know, I mean, if you're making, if two of you are making, you know, their cost is maybe a million, so they, they, their take-home is two million each. Hey, that's not a bad thing to do. Yeah. So, I mean, we have case study after case study of companies that have built incredibly good uh, self-finance bootstrap businesses at this point. It's a, yeah, and you um, don't have to even be okay. big. Big businesses, just build good businesses that, 
so think about, I think people should think about that clearly because with venture, it has to be big and it has to be fast. If it's patient capital, but it's not that patient. Uh, it's not yeah. patient at all. Venture capital yeah. is not patient at all. People pretend that it's patient capital. It's not patient capital because the funds are, you know, timed funds. The reason I asked you the unicorn mania question is that, you know, the early stage investors are getting impacted by unicorn mania, right? Because somebody comes in later in the game, loads up lots of equation preferences, the early stage investors and the entrepreneurs really get screwed. Yes, yeah, yeah, that, that's true. Um, I think uh, luckily we haven't faced any of that yet, maybe. Mm -hmm. If outdoorsy gets to be in that unicorn thing, then we'll be hopefully we'll get a chance to exit before all that stuff. <laughs> yeah, I think that's the answer. Actually, exiting at the right time. So yeah. my last question before we switch to the mentoring part of the session is, uh, you know, one of my observations, and you kind of hinted uh, to this, is that we are in 2017, and lots of stuff have already been built. Nowadays, there aren't so many wide open opportunities out there, but there are many, many niche opportunities. Some of these businesses need to be built for small amounts of capital, one to two million and sold for maybe 10 to 15 million. Some even smaller, maybe invest 250, 500K, sell for five to 10 million. What do you think of these kinds of opportunities? Uh, I think they're great opportunities for uh Entrepreneurs, uh, they just have to structure them differently. I mean, if you can, um, I think there's probably, a, there should be a structured way to fund cash flow generating companies. That's something that I'm kind of curious about. I haven't looked at the markets. If you wanted to build a, like this $5 million company that I was talking about, uh, he didn't raise any money, but also he was lucky enough to, have the wherewithal to kind of figure out the marketing and the, you know, all of that stuff. There are lots of entrepreneurs that can build, and it could be, it doesn't have to be even a high-tech business. I mean, you could be making... But that's, uh, that's not my question. I think your, your point is well taken that that's a, there is a whole bootstrapped, uh, you know, business building methodology. We spend a lot of time on that because a lot of the companies that we work with actually should mm -hmm. not go and raise money. They should be built, you know, as they're small TAM opportunities, they have to be built without too much capital. The question I was asking was something a bit different where you kind of prove, you take an opportunity which is not like a billion dollar TAM opportunity. It's more like a hundred million dollar TAM kind of opportunity, which is a good tuck-in acquisition. It's better to go to market with products like that through somebody else's channel who actually has the adjacencies, all the, pro all the core products around which these niche opportunities arise are, you know, sitting somewhere else in, inside of ServiceNow or Salesforce or Oracle or SAP or somewhere like that. And, and, and what needs to happen is you kind of build the product, you, you know, get customer validation, but then instead of raising huge amounts of money, you basically sell the company very early. That's yeah, so my there question. are, there are uh, actually in tandem, in our first fund, in tandem one, that was our model. Mm -hmm. We built companies mm -hmm. for small acquisitions, and we invested in eight companies over two years, and by the third year, all eight were acquired. So it was mm -hmm. 100% interest rate. 
Uh, and today that is happening where I, I don't know if you know about a like fund like Fabric. Um, mm-hmm. You know these guys are you know a couple of entrepreneurs like a Fabric that come out of the space of the networking space, and they understand that marketplace. They built two companies in that space. Yeah very well connected in that space. They understand that there's these white spaces that you're talking about. And they yeah. find entrepreneurs that want to do stuff in that white space. They themselves put in about a million bucks into the company up front. And then uh, they help them raise money. They help them figure out the direction to go in. And then they help them get acquired. So I think yeah, Ravi is doing that in Hive, which they actually don't raise any venture capital. They do it very capital efficient and, and yeah, go straight Hive into an acquisition. Absolutely. Hive is the same. You know, Fabric and Hive, they, uh, they were in the same office building for a while. So mm-hmm. Hive is doing it in big data. Hive, um, Fabric is doing it in the networking That's space. I think, you know, there's going to be a lot of these that uh, emerge, and rightly so. Yeah. All right. Well, great uh, talking to you and and getting caught up on your activities and and how your fund has evolved. When you first told me you were going to do the fund many years ago, you were more in that early stages of um, thinking through what you were going to do, how you were going to play this game. And uh, it has evolved, obviously, so it's interesting to see your story. Yeah, thank you.